Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Hey everyone, Mikkel here. So I have an ask for you today. If you're enjoying this podcast, what I want you to do is go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you want to leave us a five-star review, even better. If not, tell us why. We are really doing our best to make this show the absolute best it can be to help as many people to go offshore and inspire entrepreneurs and investors and business owners to move their businesses abroad. There's so much to be had in this industry. I love doing this work and I love doing this podcast, but we want to get the message out there to more people. And the best way to do that is with reviews. So if you have ever gotten one good tip, one good thing from this show, if you enjoy listening to us every single Wednesday or whenever you listen during the week, then please take 30 seconds out of your day, go out there, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It actually makes a big difference for the show, for the visibility, and really helps get the word out there. So I appreciate that. Thank you so much, everyone, for your support, and enjoy today's episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show, and today's guest is a veteran travel writer who has written articles from five continents. He is the author of multiple books, including Travel Writing 2.0, a best-selling detailed guide to success in the digital age, and is the editor of Perceptive Travel. His company, Alcentro Media, produces a variety of additional websites, including Hotel Scoop, and he has won dozens of awards in the last 12 years as a travel writer. Please welcome to the show, Tim Leffel. Tim, how are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. I'm really excited for this conversation today. Why don't you take a couple of minutes, Tim, and just kind of tell us about how you got into travel writing and a bit about your backstory. Well, I started out in the music business, actually, back when the music business was more powerful than it is today because people actually bought CDs. And I worked for RCA Records in Nashville and New York City after I got out of college. And then... I met a woman in New York City. These things happen sometimes. She told me, I want to go traveling around the world, and I would really like it if you went with me. And I said, well, man, I got this career. I got this condo. I got this car because I was living in New Jersey in Hoboken. But eventually, my boss and I hated each other, and I got fired from my job, and her company went out of business. And we said, well, if we were waiting for a sign, I think we've gotten it. (laughs) So we saved up some money and took off backpacking around the world. It was in the mid-90s in the pre-internet age. There actually was such a thing. People your age probably can't fathom that. (laughs) But we had no email. We had no social media. But anyway, 
we went around the world eventually for three years total over the course of four. We taught English in a couple countries. But the key thing is I started travel writing then because I had actually already done a lot of writing in my music biz job, just kind of band bios and sales copy and things like that. So I had a bit of experience. And I just started pitching articles to editors and got some bites here and there. And I got this job reviewing hotels in Turkey, like 70-some hotels. And so that kind of got me a lot of good practice. And eventually that company hired me for some more gigs in different countries. So I got a lot of writing under my belt, a lot of magazine writing and that kind of thing. But once the Internet came along is when I really was able to eventually take this thing full time because it's really tough to just make money as a freelancer writing articles for publications that you don't own but if you can start your own publication then you can you know keep most of it and so there's a big difference there so blogging started to take off and I had a blog that I started in 2003 which I still run it's called the cheapest destinations blog and then I started adding other sites on as I went along I used to have one about travel gear I started perceptive travel. I started a site focused on Latin America, basically just where I saw holes in the market. It eventually got to a point where I had worked another job, a tech job, and I had taken a job with a sort of a PR firm. But eventually I kind of struck out on my own. This was about 12, 13 years ago. And I've been at it ever since, supporting my family just as an online publisher and writer. See, I love it because you have the longevity and you have the experience. So for my listeners who are maybe wanting to explore something like this, I think it's really beneficial to have a conversation with you about the industry and like how it's changed over the years and what the trends are. So I, I'm really happy to have you on. Well, thanks. And it has gotten easier. I would like to start with that because it was tough to slog it out in 2003, when I started in the mid-2000s, there just weren't a lot of ways to monetize a website. You know, AdSense hadn't even come along at that point. There was no YouTube, there was no Facebook. So it's gotten easier over the years to get the word out and also to make money at it. But I would also assume that it's become a lot more competitive and a lot more crowded in the marketplace. Yeah, absolutely. So it's the old thing where the pie has gotten larger, but there are more people fighting for pieces of it. So <laughs> you still have to sort of stand out from the crowd. So what do you do to stay competitive in this changing marketplace? Well, I try to stay on top of SEO trends and what's working and you know how people are driving traffic and that sort of thing. But sort of my North Star, my guiding light all the time is to try to have a unique voice and not be publishing the same things everybody else is publishing. I think a lot of bloggers, no matter what they're writing about, tend to go down that path of just publishing listicles and, you know, real basic how-to things and top 10 lists. And and you end up not having much of a personality, not having much of a tribe that you've built up. You're just kind of trying to game the search engines or try to get clickbait articles out there that people will click on in social media. But I think if you can manage to write about things nobody else is writing about, then you've got a lot better chance of standing out and doing well in search engines just because you're not trying to compete at the same level the big corporations are. Well, it just drives me nuts. When I go to do a search and I'm looking for the answer to something, I find an article, sounds like it's exactly what I want. I read it. It's 450 or 500 words. doesn't answer my questions at all, and it always ends up being a six tips or nine tips or something like that. I always appreciate like that epic content, which is you know a 2,000-word or 4,000-word article that really goes deep onto the topic at hand. Yeah, and the good news is I think you've had a few SEO people on your 
podcast lately. The good news is Google is starting to reward those longer posts a lot more. They sort of got away from that, and they were kind of pushing those crappy listicles to the top. But now they seem to be in their algorithm actually taking into account how in-depth your article is, not just how many people have linked to it, because that's easy to game too. <laughs> so uh, they're actually looking at the content on the page and saying, does this have authority? Does this person know what they're talking about? Is there really some meat to this? And who knows how that happens from a mathematical standpoint, but I'm glad to see it happening. Yeah, absolutely. And those people that really put in the time and the effort, like you, you know, your stuff really should rise to the top. Yeah, you would hope. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tim, why don't you tell me a little bit about what you're focused on at the moment? Well, everything I do is in some way or another related to travel. So even when I was talking about luggage and gear and apparel, it was still all travel gear. So I could probably branch off into other things, but I find it's easier to just kind of stick to that. I mean, it is a very competitive field, but it's a fun one. So you know, it's got that going for it. I basically run five different sites. One of them is all about travel writing. So that's kind of like an inside baseball sort of thing, travelwriting2.com. And that just goes with my book. I interview other writers and editors and just try to give people a sense of what's worked for them, how they've gotten to where they are. But then the others are more just general consumer focused. Um, one's all about hotels. The Cheapest Destinations blog is all about you know, how to travel well for less. And funny, at the other end of the scale, the one that's on Latin America is a lot more high-end. It's about luxury travel in the Americas because nobody was really covering that back when I started it. And so I sort of just saw a, a hole in the market and went after it. And that strategy has kind of treated me well just to look for the path of least resistance, I guess you would say. But I, I travel around a fair bit and write a, write a lot myself still, but I have a lot of freelancers working for me, either regular bloggers that have a scheduled day or two each month, or in some cases, people that are pitching me stories. That's the way it is on perceptive travel. It's like kind of like a regular magazine where freelancers are pitching stories and I either say yes or no, yes or no, or, and um, we publish once a month like a magazine. There's a blog too, but the, the main part of it. So that's guest writing for the blog then? Well, the blog has a, a few regular contributors, but the actual magazine part that we do month, once a month, I mean, I say magazine even though it's just online, but that's kind of the model. Those are just articles submitted by freelancers. And my sort of marketing stand out there is all the stories are from published book authors. So it kind of makes it a little more literary, I guess, uh -huh. a little more long form. Well, it sounds like you have a lot on the go, but I'd really like to dig deep. Like, what are you passionate about? What really excites you with this industry at the moment? Yeah, I've managed to still stay excited about it for more than 20 years. So I guess that says something. I'm still happy to get out of bed and turn my laptop on and get to work. And I know most people can't say that, especially <laughs> if they're working, working in some cubicle somewhere for some job they hate. So I, I feel really blessed in that sense, and I maybe could be making more money doing something else, but uh, as long as I'm paying the bills and doing what I want, I feel like that's a lot of freedom, and a lot of people strive for that. So yeah, what I'm passionate about is travel, but not maybe mass market boring travel. I don't write about cruises. I don't write much about you know all-inclusive resort vacations, although I'm not really knocking that. I do it sometimes, but I tend to write about adventure activities and you know, things below the surface, maybe uh, local stories, you know, what the stories people had to tell and sort of offbeat places that you don't read much about. I've never been to Venice. I've spent one night in Paris. I don't tend to write about those places because there's enough out there already. So I tend to focus on the uh, more of the untold stories. 
So where's your favorite place to visit right now? Like what's on your bucket list? Yeah, there's a few places I haven't been that I want to get to, and I'm I'm about to become an empty nester because my daughter is going to go off to college. So I'm going to have a little more freedom to take long trips again, which I'm really looking forward to. So on that subject, I think at some point soon we're going to go to New Zealand because I feel like if you're going to travel that far, you ought to stick around for a while. <laughs> so I've never been there, so I would like to go there. And there's a lot of places in Europe I haven't been. I've mostly been to the cheap places because that's what I tend to write about a lot for my one blog and for a book I have out. So I've been to a lot to Eastern Europe and the Balkans and places like that, but I haven't been to like the typical places in Europe people go. And I haven't really spent much time in Africa. I've been to the very top and the very bottom, but almost nowhere in between. Oh man, Africa Sea is one of my favorites. I go, I try to go back at least once a year oh, wow. to Uganda, South Africa, Botswana, Zimbabwe, Kenya. Like I love all of these countries. And just being on safari and being out there in nature and meeting the people and the smaller tribes is just mind-blowing. Sounds great. So I know that you spend part of your time in the United States, and actually you live as an expat for the other half of the year. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, so I own a house in Mexico. I I lived there for a year just as a renter, and then eventually uh, we ended up buying something. And that's a path that I would strongly recommend for people, I, I think it's kind of foolhardy to just like parachute into a place and buy property because you don't really have a sense of the market and what prices are really like and which neighborhoods are best and that kind of thing. So anyway, we rented for a year there and then we actually went home for a while and then came back and lived there a couple of years and my daughter went to school that whole time in Spanish locally, which was a great experience for her, I think, and kind of has given her an extra leg up maybe in the eventual job world because she's totally bilingual. And we live in a city called Guanajuato, which is up in the mountains at 6,000 feet in the highlands of Mexico. And so it's really nice weather all year. Nobody has heat, nobody has air conditioning because it's kind of just like temperate all the time. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, my business doesn't really change no matter where I am. So we're going to go back there at the end of this year. We're going to move back in November and that'll at least be our base. You know, I won't say we'll we'll be living there all year because we'll be going off to other places sometimes. Maybe we'll go live on an island in Greece for three months and then come home, you know, rent out our place on Airbnb while we're gone. But that'll at least be the place we come back to where all our stuff is. I love it. So really setting yourself up to live your life the way that you want to and not having to follow the traditional methods or the traditional ways that people sometimes believe that their life should be, I suppose. Yeah. And I think people think it's a lot harder than it really is. You know, people get so attached to their stuff what the things that are filling their three-car garage and the two cars and everything but once you're in a place you know somewhere else once you've moved with two suitcases you realize oh i guess i didn't need all that stuff after all and i i lived in korea teaching english for 14 months and really all we got there with was our what was in our backpacks and it was fine you know you buy a few things you get some new outfits and whatever but I think people don't realize what a prison they built for themselves a lot of times with the big mortgage and the, you know, overstuffed house and everything. It's pretty easy to just pick up and start over somewhere else with, as long as you've got some money in the bank and, you know, enough to pay the bills. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd love to talk to you a little bit about how you were able to set your business up so that you did have this type of freedom. Well, I think with the internet functioning the way it does now, I mean, not maybe not the way it started in 1996, but the one it, the way it functions now, as long as you've got good bandwidth, you can pretty much do anything. You know, you can have calls like this. You can have conference calls on Zoom or Skype or 
Google Hangouts or whatever, you can make phone calls that sound as good as if you made them at home. So really, a lot of the things you are doing in an office, you can do from Zimbabwe if you want, as long as you've got a decent connection. So, you know, especially with all the tools we have now, like it would have been impossible to imagine back in the mid 90s, all the things you can do now for free or close to it, as far as like Dropbox and, you know, Google Docs and Amazon storage and all these things, the way we can transfer things and share files and all of that. You can have a collaboration of a team of 10 people around the world and is and you're in better touch now than you would have been in the same office, you know, 15 years ago. So I don't think there are really many setbacks now, except, of course, if you're doing business that requires sales, you probably want to do some face-to-face time now and then and go to conferences and things like that. You are going to have to travel. But I think as far as the day-to-day office work kind of stuff that you need to do, it's, it's really easy now to just be popping open your laptop and going to work. Excellent. So no challenges, no difficulties or setbacks or anything you can highlight for me that people might want to keep in mind? Well, they're mostly bandwidth oriented. (laughs) I keep coming back to that because like every digital nomad you talk to, that's like top of their mind. Like if you, if you ask them what's wrong about your job, they're like, oh my God, sometimes the Wi-Fi is horrible. You know, like every country is not to the same level when it comes to bandwidth. And when I first moved to Mexico, it was kind of funny. It's gotten better now, but when I first got there, we had five megabits per second which is okay if you're actually getting that all the time, but we were not getting it all the time. It's sort of like the DSL effect when you're, when the kids would all come home from school and the neighbors were on, sometimes it would drop and I'd have to yell at my daughter to get off YouTube because I had to make a Skype call, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. And, you know, there are cultural differences, of course, anywhere you go. The USA is the land of convenience and, you know, we're used to having everything at our fingertips all the time whenever we want it. And it's not necessarily like that in the rest of the world. Also, the rest of the world is not as workaholic as people in the U.S. are, unless maybe you go to Japan or Korea. So I think you have to make some adjustments. You have to slow down, which I think is a good thing. I feel like my heart rate goes down when I go back to Mexico because people are not so stressed about their work. You know, they're more concerned about what's going on with their family and they guard their free time very uh, strongly. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, you have to make adjustments, of course. And but, I mean, from a work standpoint, the main main difference is just, yeah, sometimes technical things don't work out the way you want them to. And sometimes you got to deal with weird banking things where you still got to have an address at home because they insist on sending you a physical piece of paper that somebody has to sign and things like that. But most everything you can do now online. No, that's all great points. And, and, and I suppose I'm as guilty as, as anyone. I think humans, we tend to overthink things and overanalyze things. But the way that you make it sound is actually it's a lot more straightforward than maybe we would initially expect. Yeah, I mean, I, when I think of like the worst day I had in Mexico when I lived there the last time was the internet went out in the entire city for like 24 hours. I mean, you couldn't go to a cafe, you couldn't, you know, fire up your phone. Like, there was just plain no internet, like some major trunk line had gone down or something. And, you know, that's such a weird feeling because we're not used to that. You know, there's always a plan B, you know, you just go somewhere else and get online, but you physically could not get online anywhere. And so, you know, things like that happen sometimes, but you just got to roll with it, you know, and figure out, uh, well... What's the biggest disaster that can happen? Maybe I have to call somebody and tell them this disaster is going to happen, but otherwise we'll survive. Perfect. And 
kind of on the same vein. Any times where you just expected something just to work out and you ended up just falling on your face and then like it just didn't happen the way you expected it to? And then maybe like what happened? What did you learn from something like that? Yeah, it's funny. When I came back from backpacking around the world, I I was really fortunate. I had an interview with this guy for a, a job at a tech company and he looked at my resume and started asking about, you know, what I'd been doing the past few years. He was like, wow, that's really great. Like, I bet you've encountered all kinds of problems that you had to overcome and really, you know, learn to adapt and cope with different situations. And I was thinking, yeah, <laughs> that's it exactly. But then my wife went to interview with, with some woman in some employment agency. She's like, what's this gap on your resume? You've done nothing. You've done nothing. <laughs> and she was so annoyed, like, when she came out of that interview. And that just shows the difference in attitude that people have. But it's true that when you are, especially when you're backpacking around the world on a budget, you are just, you're in a constant mode of problem solving and adaptation. So I could just think of lots of times where the bus didn't show up or, you know, the plane got canceled for no good reason or the hotel we were supposed to stay at, the plane wasn't there anymore. You know, all these things happen or people are constantly trying to scam you, especially in countries like India and Morocco and Egypt, where there's just a long history of that. And, uh, you know, you just kind of got to always have your radar up. Like, could I trust this guy? Probably not. <laughs> you know, you default to no, and then you figure out who you can trust. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I've not had any really huge disasters. Some people have had you know, terrible accidents on the road or, you know, motorbike wrecks and things like that. But really, all of mine have been pretty petty when I look back on it. Like I had a camera stolen, I've been pickpocketed, you know, things like that. But nothing that has been, you know, a major, major setback. And thankfully nobody's ever stolen my laptop. That would that would be a disaster. So with all of these delayed flights, missing things, bus doesn't show up, what was the worst that happened? Like was there any permanent harm, permanent damage, anything like that? No, not really. I mean I, I think of even times we've gotten sick or something, you know, it hasn't been permanent. Thankfully, I've never gotten malaria, something like that that comes back. But no, I mean, I think that's a good lesson for life. Usually things will work out in the end. And what seems like the end of the world when it's happening a year or two later seems like it's pretty insignificant. <laughs> yeah, because like I've been traveling for 20 years. I've been to almost 100 countries and people automatically assume that it must be really difficult and there must be so many challenges. And, you know, like, what happens if, like, what do you do if this happened? What do you do if that happened? And I'm like, you know, I hitchhiked through Central America when I was 20 by myself with a jar of peanut butter and a tent, you know? And, like, I had lots of funny stories, but there was nothing any, there was never anything that really terrible happened that ruined the trip or ruined my life. Like, you just end up figuring it out, like, just every step of the way. You just problem solve, and, and I think that type of resilience really builds character. So it's, it's interesting to hear you have the, more or less, the similar experience. Yeah, and I think that teaches you a few good life lessons, too, about adaptation and about putting things in perspective, because you know, in our regular work life too, things come up that we think, oh my God, this is a disaster. And it turns out to not be such a disaster. It's just a little setback. It's a hurdle, you know, and you get over it and then you move on and maybe you even learn from that. So it doesn't happen again. Uh, but you know, usually there's, usually it's just a delay. That's what it normally boils down to. Something didn't happen as fast as you thought it would because this thing got in the way. But 
you know, if you miss the bus and have to leave two days later, well, no big deal. Maybe you'll have to change a flight later, but mm-hmm. you know, maybe maybe you have to pay a little extra fee to change your flight. It's it's really a lot of things can just be solved by time or money. If you have both those things, you're in good shape. <laughs> and I think a lot of times it's the words that we use ourselves. It's how we define things. If you're using giant, grandiose words, things are going to seem more dramatic. But if you're like, well, it's all right. We'll just go tomorrow. Island time, island time, you know. Right. Don't make things overly dramatic. Like, it's all right. Things will be okay, especially when you're traveling. A lot of times you don't have that time limitation. What's done, you know, supposed to be done today can actually be done tomorrow. It's all right. You'll figure it out, you know. It's problem solving, like you said. Yeah, and I think a lot of times people set them up, set themselves up for failure, too, because they schedule things too tightly. That's another lesson that long-term travelers learn that maybe vacationers haven't figured out is don't schedule a work meeting for the day you're supposed to be back from vacation. You know, that's just stupid. Something's going to go wrong. You're going to miss your meeting. You know, don't schedule your flights with a half an hour connection between them. You know, that's just going to stress you out and you might miss it. So just have some sense and build some buffer time in there. Absolutely. We will just take a quick break. So I want to remind you to go to expatmoneyshow.com to pick up your free special report called 19 International Strategies to Grow and Protect Your Wealth Abroad. We have had some really good feedback with this. It's actually a project I've been working on for probably about four years now and been offering it to my subscribers. And I am constantly updating it with the best and the newest resources for people wanting to go abroad. It is really amazing. I'm really happy with the work that we've done. And it's really different than a lot of the other projects out there or special reports or ebooks or anything like that. And this is one of the main differences. It is highly curated, is highly condensed. It is not 400, 500 pages long and talking about every single thing out there and every single little detail. Actually, that doesn't serve anyone. Your best bet is always to go with the really, really condensed information so that you can connect the dots, so you can understand what's happening and how things fit together. And that's exactly what this special report does. So it's called 19 International Strategies to Grow and Protect Your Wealth Abroad. You can find it completely for free 100% free at expatmoneyshow.com. Okay, enjoy, and let's jump back into the interview. So I would love to hear your opinion, Tim, kind of like what's hot these days? Like where do you think traveling trends are heading? Maybe trends for living overseas in any type of expat communities. What do you see is happening in the marketplace? I'll start with the second one. In the expat world, I've got this book out called A Better Life for Half the Price that has sold way, way beyond my expectations because it came out in 2014 and it did pretty well for a while. But then this angry orange guy got elected president and it's really helped my sales. (laughs) (laughs) So that's one trend. I think a lot more Americans have woken up to the fact they could live somewhere else if they want and kind of ride it out for a while. But, you know, I think the main driver is economic. Usually people move abroad either because they get assigned somewhere for their job or they realize they can live a lot better life somewhere else for less money just because there are a lot of fundamental things in the U.S. that cost you a fortune that you don't even think about because you're so used to them. But medical care especially is just like outrageously expensive compared to anywhere else in the world. And people are just used to this nutso system that we have and they think that that's normal. But it's very abnormal when you live anywhere else. You realize how abnormal it is whether you're in a rich country or a poor country. They all have much better systems than ours and much more humane systems and efficient systems. 
So there are things like that. And, you know, if you live in a place like New York or San Francisco, you're paying an ungodly amount for rent and you could probably travel around the world for life in a very high fashion for what you're just spending for rent where you live now. Once people kind of figure that out, they go, oh, wow, I could really do a lot more with what I'm earning. And if you run some kind of online business and you're not tied to an office, then why do you need to live in a super expensive place? So that's kind of the trend I'm seeing from the American side on the on the expat world. I think British people and Australian people, you know, others have kind of been clued into this for a long time. But for Americans, there was kind of a stigma attached to it, like you were unpatriotic or something if you moved abroad but or, or you know this is the greatest country in the world why would you move anywhere else <laughs> you know? i've heard that one some, before <laughs> yeah so i think there's some realization that there are uh, greener pastures out there perhaps uh from the travel side it's funny the trend is i think that there are fewer and fewer surprises all the time like everything is known now and there are so many people out there posting photos every day on instagram from every corner of the world that it used to be when you saw a movie like the little buddha that took place in Kathmandu, you were like oh my god what an exotic place you know because you hadn't seen those pictures a thousand times or if you the first time you saw a picture of machu picchu you were like oh my god what an amazing place well, now we've each seen 10,000 photos. Every single person that goes there snaps a picture from the same place, you know. So it's uh, it's kind of burned into our mind now. So I feel like it's kind of harder in a way to be surprised by a place than it used to be. So maybe that's why I seek out places people haven't written about very much because I like to uh, still like to be surprised. So give me a couple of examples of the places that have not been written about that that you're you're now focusing in on. I want to hear these random uh, crazy destinations because I, I I can think of a couple in my head, but I, I'm I'm more curious in what you have to say. Well, I think a lot of times they're right under our nose. Like even in Europe, if you go to places in if you go to the south of the Czech Republic or certain parts of Hungary and definitely in the Balkans, there's hardly any other tourists around. You know, and it's still. So there may be a million people mobbed into Florence and Venice, but even in Italy, if you go two hours away from there, you get into places where, you know, you go into some mountain town and they look at you like, where did you come from? <laughs> you know, because tourists are still very, very focused on like the greatest hits kind of places. So uh, I feel that like that's true on almost every continent, you know, even if you go to Thailand, I don't know, they get some 35 million a year or something insane like that in that little country. But there are still places you can go there where there are hardly any other travelers around. And uh, I went to a couple of them two years ago. And yeah, it's just, it's kind of interesting. And I live in Mexico and I travel a lot around Mexico. And I wrote this post one time called A Backpacker Town with No Backpackers because uh, it was this town called Quetzalan. It's north of Puebla, two or three hours north of the city of Puebla. And the whole time we were there, we didn't see any tourists that weren't Mexican. Like, we we saw no other, you know, uh, Western faces, I guess you'd no say, for gringos. lack of a, Yeah, no gringos. That's, <laughs> that's it. For We were there for three or four days, you know. It, but it was the kind of place that you would think would be mobbed with backpackers because it's like this cool, funky old city made of stone, lots of good street food, you know, lots of things to see around there, waterfalls and ruins and stuff. Nobody was there. So I feel like, it's pretty easy still to get beyond beyond the crowds. You just have to, you know, step off the beaten path a little bit. So if my listeners, they like this conversation and they like this idea of 
traveling the world and writing and publishing. What kind of tips could you give them if they wanted to get in this type of work? How could they develop their skills or what should they be doing? Well, I think there are two essential elements. You have to be really into travel and you have to be really into writing, like the actual process of writing. I think a lot of people start out and they start a blog and they realize they love the photography part, but they hate the writing part. And so then they become Instagram stars or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, you got to be honest with yourself and say, is this something I want to be doing every week, week in, week out? And a lot of people think they love to travel. They tell me they love to travel. And I say, oh, where have you been recently? They say, oh, well, I haven't been able to take a vacation for the last two years. And I just bluntly say, then you don't love to travel because you would have found a way. You know, if it's important to you, you would have found a way. You obviously care more about your car or something else than you do about travel. So this is not the world for you. I think most of the people I know that are travel writers or bloggers, they can't imagine doing anything else. Like they just wanted to find a way to perpetuate their travels. You know, they maybe they went away for a year backpacking around the world and they realized I do not want to go back to a regular job and they found a way to make a living from it. And I think you find that a lot with tour guides too. And, you know, especially adventure guides or people that start adventure tour companies, they realize I'm not really skilled in anything else. This is what I've got to, this is what I've got to do because this is my passion. So I, you know, I, some people like drag on that word passion and say, you can't just follow your passion because you got to find a way to make money at it, which is true. I mean, just because you're passionate about something doesn't mean anyone owes you a living. But if you can find a way to marry your passion with a means to make a living, then that's a beautiful thing. You're you're happy about going to work every day. Well, while you're talking, it reminds me, you know, when I first started traveling and people would be coming up to me, oh, you're so lucky. You're so lucky you went to South America. You're so lucky you went to Africa. You're so lucky that you went to the South Pacific. And I'm like, are you crazy? Like the amount that, of things that I had to sacrifice and say no to and turn down. Like there is no luck. There, there was so much sacrifice to build my life in a way that I felt was ethical and in a way that I, I knew was going to make me happy. Like I didn't have a, a house or a proper place to live. I lived out of a backpack for more than 10 years. I had no car. I had, you know, no friends that knew me for more than a few months. Like a lot of people you know, they'll look at someone else's life and go, wow, you're so lucky, but they don't see all the hard work and all the trials and tribulations that went into something like that and what they had to sacrifice. So if this is something that you want to do, I think that you really have to understand what you're giving up and that it can be challenging. But at least for me, and it sounds like for you as well, Tim, is it is unbelievably rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's not luck, as you just illustrated. It's just a mindset. It's a matter of prioritization. You made that priority and you went out and made it happen. It wasn't luck. You know, luck didn't put you in South America. You're, the money you spent on a plane ticket did, you know. And my wife and I share a car because we both work from home. And if I guess if we were living a typical American life, we would have two brand new cars in the driveway. But, you know, with, it's silly. We would rather spend that money on other things like travel. And I think a lot of people, you know, they're just not willing to make the sacrifice it would take to travel more. And they also think it's more expensive than it really has to be, which is a whole other subject. But... You know, they they have to spend 10 grand when they go on vacation just because they think that's what you got to do. But you don't have to do like, you don't have to travel like that. And I always say when I'm out traveling, I meet people with very humble jobs. I mean, I meet school teachers, I meet carpenters, bartenders, and they're out, you know, traveling around Africa or, or Southeast Asia. You know, they found a way to make it happen, 
even though they're probably making 30 grand a year or something. It's just they made that a priority over having a BMW in the, in the driveway or whatever, having the latest big screen 3D TV. So say you had a new mentee who came to you and decided that they wanted to be a travel writer. What would you tell them to do? I would tell them to, first of all, travel because you can't write about it unless you're out there, unless you write about your own region, which is not a bad idea. If you can cover your own region well and just do places that are nearby. I mean, I live in Tampa, Florida right now. I could write about Florida the rest of my life if I really wanted to, and there would be plenty of material. So you don't have to necessarily be jetting around the world, but you do have to get out of your comfort zone a little bit and do some different things. And also just get as much practice as you can. The best thing about writing a blog is it makes you post constantly. You know, most bloggers will post two or three times a week, at least once a week. So that gives you, that gets you regular practice. You're writing thousands of words a month and you get better over time just from that practice and realizing what resonates with people and what doesn't. And the other thing which gets ignored a lot is you need to read a lot too because it's almost like a learning by osmosis thing to the positive side because if you read good literature, you're not going to write really stupid, cliched things that you know sound really like fingernails on a chalkboard to an experienced <laughs> editor. You know, you're, you're going to know what is bad writing and what is good writing because you've immersed yourself in so much good writing. And that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be highbrow literature. You can be reading bestsellers, if, you know, page turners if you want. It will at least teach you how to construct sentences well, how to show, don't tell, you know, how to build suspense and, you know, conflict and re resolution and all that stuff. Good storytelling. So, you know, read a lot, immerse yourself in, in magazines too, you know, not just books, read wh whatever's out there that's well-written. And you learn from that, you become better. And over time, it's just a, really a matter of persistence and longevity. Most of the people I know that are making really good money at this, have been doing it for five years or more, day in, day out, just grinding it out. You know, they didn't wait for the muse to strike. <laughs> they sat down and got to work. And I think you kind of have to approach it like that, like it's a real job and it's a real craft and continually improve at it. So what I hear you saying is that go out there, start your blog, start it today, and then just sit down and start writing. Start writing every single day, even when you don't feel like it. And at the same time, make sure that you're reading every day so that you're filling your brain with good examples that you'll be able to model from. Yeah, absolutely. And and if you read writing books that are written by well-known writers, like there's one from Anne Lamott called Bird by Bird. There's Stephen King's own writing. When you read books like that, you realize they struggle too. You know, they, they're not magically cranking out great stuff every day, but they do go at it every day. And sometimes what they write, they end up throwing away or they just use three sentences from it, but they are working at it. And if you work at it every day, or at least almost every day, you're going to Put out good material after a while. You know, it's not all going to be great, but enough of it is that you've got a good body of work. And so if someone wants to get published, how would they go about doing something like that? Say that they follow these couple of first steps and they get a year under their belt and they're a decent writer. How would they get published or how do they, do they do guest blogging? How would all of this work? Well, your own blog, nobody has to give you permission. You can just launch WordPress, pick a theme and you're off and running. But if you want to publish in other people's you can do guest posts that you know basically you don't get paid for those you write for someone else in exchange for getting a link to your site but there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sites out there that are hiring freelancers on a regular basis 
And some of them are advertised. You know, they're looking for gigs. They're looking for someone to write for them. But other times you just have to pitch an editor. That's been the traditional magazine way that you got published is you send a story to an editor, an idea, a, base, a query letter is what it's called. It's like three or four paragraphs. You tell them what the idea is and what your credentials are, and they either assign it to you or don't. And it's a work your way up the ladder thing. You're going to have to get in wherever you can at first, and then after you get some credits, you can get into bigger publications. But one of the reasons for having a really well-defined niche, though, that we sort of talked about in the beginning is if you are one of the only people writing about a certain subject, you're much more likely to get published writing about that subject because you're perceived as an expert and you will even have things landing in your lap after a while because editors find you through Google and they might get in touch with you and say, I need a story about this place or I need a story about this kind of travel. Um, we were joking at this conference I was at last week. This guy that runs this influencer network, advertising network, needed to find a blogger who wrote about kite surfing. And he searched and searched and searched, and he found the guy. There's like one guy who writes about who writes a travel blog about kite surfing. So, you know, that guy got work out of it. He got a trip to Mauritius and like $2,000 for, you know, writing all these pieces for the islands. And it's because he was the one guy who covered that subject in depth. So if you can stand out somehow and not just try to cover anything and everything, you've got a much better shot of getting freelance work as well. And if you ever put out a book, you're going to have a much better chance of selling that book because you've got a built-in tribe of followers. Yeah, and then you're really seen as the, the celebrity or the expert in that one field and uh, double down on that. That makes sense. Exactly. So if someone's deciding that they either want to do a second career or they're deciding that they want to go into this after finishing school, what type of money can people expect to be making from this? Is this a sustainable living? It is after a certain point. I think the key is just to not have unrealistic expectations about how fast it's going to happen. When I was a freelancer writing for magazines, I didn't know anybody making a hundred grand a year. I'm sure there were some of them around, like celebrity sort of writers, you know, book authors, but I personally didn't know anybody. But now in the blogging world, just among travel bloggers, I know dozens of them that are making, you know, six figures every year. So that's how much easier it's gotten to really monetize your site. And there are some travel bloggers out there that are getting more traffic than travel and leisure is, you know, it's just, they've gotten to a point where they've built up such a huge following that even without a hundred people on the masthead, like Travel and Leisure has, you know, they're like a two-man operation. They're reaching millions of readers. So I think it's possible to get to that point in time, but I don't know anybody that got to that point within a year. It's just the way Google works and the way social media works and everything else. It just takes some time to build up readership and a following and to get indexed properly and all of that. So even if you're the greatest writer in the world and you pick the best subject area in the world, it's not going to happen quickly. You'll make a trickle of money at first, enough to buy a pack of gum, and then maybe later you'll make enough to buy a beer, and then eventually you'll make enough to pay the electric bill, <laughs> and you know, it just starts building up from there. But then after you've been doing it for two or three years, you might actually be making enough to live on, and that's a beautiful thing. So what are some other ways that people might be able to monetize possibly like their own blog? Well, there's a few different categories. One is AdSense, which is one of the oldest ones. That's just the Google code you put up on your site. And basically every time somebody clicks on an ad, you get paid. There are affiliate ads, which are Amazon or REI, you know, companies like that, where you link to a certain product or a certain page and you get a commission off that anywhere from 4 to 8% usually. 
the same thing with hotels. You know, somebody books a hotel, you get a percentage of that. And then there are also some affiliate things that pay more. Like if it's, I don't know, like somebody's got a, a course out that's $499. If you sell one of those, you're going to make a lot more than five bucks. But it depends on your audience, you know, whatever makes sense for your audience. And then there are direct sponsorship deals where, let's just say, for instance, you've got a blog about kayak fishing. You'll probably get some interest from people who make fishing gear, people that make kayaks. They might want to hook up with your blog and advertise on there. They might pay you to do sponsored posts, you know, where you write about their brand new kayak in exchange for a few hundred dollars. You know, it's sort of an advertorial model. And then uh, there are long-term ambassadorship programs. So maybe going back to that example, maybe you're a champion for a certain brand of fishing kayak and they pay you a monthly stipend to talk about it and to uh, you know, have your ads on their site, put it in, their newslet- in your newsletter and maybe do a certain amount of social posts per month. Maybe you go to a convention and you sort of represent them or speak and have a t-shirt on. I don't know. There's all kinds of possibilities. The key is once you have a platform, there's all kinds of things you can do with that platform. It's just, you can also sell your own products. You can sell your own eBooks that that's very simple, or you can sell actual paperback books. You can sell courses. You know, there's lots of, lots of things you can do, but all of them require having an audience first. So I would advise anyone who's starting a new blog don't even put any ads on it for the first three months or six months till you start getting some traffic because what's the point? It just slows down your site and you're not going to make any money anyway. Well, those are a lot of really good ideas there. What about companies like who gift, gift away hotel stays if you write about them? or Because you hear about this a lot with Instagram and I would assume that they would be also prevalent in blogs and online writing. Yeah, of course. And I think one thing that brands are just finally figuring out with Instagram is there's this whole sales cycle with travel. There's a sales cycle with anything, but with travel, it's pretty long. Like if you see a picture of New Zealand go, wow, I'd really like to go there. You're not going to pick up the phone and book a trip in the next five minutes. You know? <laughs> You're know, you going to maybe do it two years from now, five years ago, five years from now. I mean, I've been wanting to go to New Zealand for 15 years. I still haven't gone. So I think with Instagram, the the, the risk there is yeah, you've got all these beautiful photos of your hotel, but it doesn't maybe it's going to result in any bookings. So they usually will balance that out with content marketing also and banner ads and everything else. But content marketing in the sense that they do want people to write about their hotel. They want real press like in magazines, but they also want bloggers to write about them, bloggers that have the right audience. So yeah, that is a real thing where they will, in some cases, Bloggers will actually get paid for staying there and writing about it if they have a really huge following. But other times, it's mostly a barter. The hotel says, yeah, you can come stay here for a night or two, write a review, put up a bunch of pictures, and everybody will be happy. Because they also know that that article is going to stay up for years and keep sending people there. So I do quite a bit of that because one site I run is called Hotel Scoop, and it's all about hotels, and it's me and 10 contributors And yeah, we get hosted a lot of places because of that. Well, I think that's really fun, you know, being like, it it does have quite a romantic notion about it. You know, you go in, stay in someone's nice hotel, you write a couple of articles about it, and the whole vacation is free. I don't know if that's exactly how it works, but that's how it works in my mind. And I think it'd be pretty neat. Yeah, I mean, there are a few downsides. You do have to be working when you're there. You got to take a bunch of photos and post things and whatever. And if you're traveling alone, which I am sometimes... Then you look like the one dork who's among 100 couples, you know, like, what's that guy here by himself for? (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, 
Yeah, it works out pretty well. When I ran that travel gear site, I used to get a ton of travel gear, you know, like luggage and shoes and jackets and everything, like more than I could possibly use. So people that knew me were very happy because I was handing things off a lot of times. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Good man to know. You know, that works in any, any industry. If you're a golf writer, you're going to get free clubs. If you're a car reviewer, uh, I knew a guy who got a new car every two weeks, and he would basically bring the old one back, get a new one. He didn't even own his own car. He would just have a different car every two weeks the entire year because he was like the newspaper columnist for autos. <laughs> so talk to me about the numbers a little bit. Say that we had one of my listeners, and they followed your advice. They started their own blog. They got good at writing. They were reading a lot. They got a couple of years under their belt. How many readers a month do you think would need to be hitting the blog to be able to generate a full-time income? Yeah, that's a tough one to answer because it kind of depends on how focused it is. So if you had a really focused blog going back to kite surfing or kayak fishing or something like that, or even rock climbing, you could probably have five or 10,000 readers in a month and that would be enough. You know, my, um, my luxury Latin America site gets between 10 and 20,000 a month, but it makes the most money of any site I own because it's very focused. And the people that want to be on there want to reach those exact readers, and they're willing to pay for that. But if you had like a general interest, here I am traveling around the world kind of blog, then you need more like 50, 60,000 to start making money, 100,000 to really be comfortable. So a lot of it depends on how focused the material is and what subject you're writing about. I would imagine even beyond travel, like if you're writing a finance blog that's focused on annuities and you know, day trading, you're probably going to not need as much traffic as somebody who's writing about frugality, <laughs> you know, about a coupon, coupon clip or something, just because of the kind of advertisers you would potentially get for those two sites are vastly different. So it's true in travel too. You, you, can, you can have fewer readers if you're more focused or more high end. Like I have looked at some of the major travel blogs out there and sometimes you see these numbers and they're like, 400,000 views, yeah. like website hits a month. And I'm like, Jesus, like, how do you, how does that even happen? How do you get to something like that? Yeah. Sometimes it was first mover advantage. They've been out there a while, but most of the time they're just really good at marketing. You know, they realized how to do SEO well. They learned how to do social media well. And then it sort of compounds after a while. It's a snowball effect. You know, once you start showing up on the first page of Twitter or Facebook as travel bloggers to follow, then naturally you get more followers. And once you're, you've got like 10 articles at the top of number, at the number one spot in Google, then people are going to start reading other articles and they'll start moving up. So, you know, it, again, it comes back to time, you know, the longer you've been doing it, the easier it is. I've got a few friends that have been out there less than two years and have not 400,000, but maybe 80, 100,000. They're doing really well. And they just worked at it busted their butt every day for two years and put out good material. That's part of it. <laughs> Unique material and just did everything right and moved up quickly. So it is possible, but I'm saying two years is quickly. Two years <laughs> is very business. quickly. Like that's, that's unheard of to, to, you know, be making a full-time living within two years just doing that. So most people have multiple streams of income anyway. Like they make money from eBooks or from running tours or from freelance writing or something else. Like it's, it's kind of dangerous to depend on any one thing. And even on the blog, it's dangerous to depend on any one stream of income. Like you want to have multiple kinds of advertising, for example, because as we've seen with Facebook and Instagram and, you know, other things, 
the algorithm can change. And if you're depending on that third party, you could be in big trouble from one day to the next. Absolutely. So you mentioned SEO. I have done entire episodes on SEO, so I don't want to touch too much on that. But I am curious, do you do your own SEO? Do you outsource something like that for someone who specializes in just that? Or, or what's your take? What's your view on it? Yeah, I've done it all myself, and I'm probably more lackadaisical about it than I should be. I think if somebody came in and did an SEO audit and I paid them to actually go implement all this stuff, I could probably do better. My, my main struggle is finding the time to make the changes you know, the little tweaks here and there that would probably make a difference. Like every six months, I'll kind of do a competitive analysis and see who's ahead of me and what keywords they're using and things like that. But I'm not one of those people who obsesses over the keyword planner and tries to build the article around the keywords. I try to write the article and then figure out what keywords will work. And so some people would see that as completely backwards, but I I generally have something to say and I have questions to answer that I've gotten from readers or that I've seen out on message boards or whatever. I'm not stressing too much about what actual keywords will get people to there as much as I'm thinking about contextually, what will they be searching for that will lead them to this page. And once again, thankfully, Google's gotten a little better in that regard. Uh, I think part of that's been spurred on by all the voice search that's going on. So people are searching entire sentences. They're not just searching a word or two. So I think if you can answer the questions that people are asking, you're going to do a lot better than if you obsess over one or two keywords that are really competitive and you try to rank well for those because the more competitive it is, the harder it is. And with my hotel site, for example, I'm competing with TripAdvisor and Expedia and Priceline. I'm never going to beat them. I don't have the resources, you know. So if I try to like see which keywords they're ranking for and try to copy that, I'm I'm dead in the water. I'm never going to do well. So I have to find sort of an end around by writing more in depth or writing about places that aren't covered as much and things like that. Yeah, that's kind of a <laughs> a left-handed answer to the, to what you asked. I I don't have a lot of real one two three techniques to share because uh, I really think. What has to come first is it's got to be a good article that helps people if it's a how-to sort of thing, if it's, you know, if it's service information. Then you really got to answer the questions like you were talking about in the beginning. If someone's searching for that, you got to answer the questions that will you know, they'll get them the information they need. And if you can do that, I think the rest is kind of secondary. So really focusing on the long tail and not trying to compete with the monsters out there like TripAdvisor and, and the other companies that you mentioned. Yeah, and if you can, you know, sort of specialize in a certain subject or a certain place, you're going to learn over time what the questions are and what people care about and want to know, and you'll have a much better sense of that than Expedia or TripAdvisor will. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, going back to the example of someone who is wanting to get into travel writing, what do you think is a good number for the amount that they should be writing every day? Should they be sitting down at the computer and banging out? four hours straight or, you know, is 60 minutes stuff? Like what, what would someone's day look like who wanted to be a professional travel writer? Yeah, well, I, I would caution them at first to not sort of bang out too much at, at once because in the beginning, not many people are going to be reading what you write. So I usually suggest to people to do just one post a week at first and then step it up once they start getting some more traffic because, you, first of all, you don't want to get burned out on it. It's kind of discouraging if you're writing three posts a week and you're getting three three readers a week. You know? And one's your mom. <laughs> yeah, one's your mom. You also don't want to be one of those 
singer-songwriters who has a fantastic first album and then everything else sucks, you know? Like, maybe you want to save some of your best material for later when you've got more readers. So um, I would, you know, try not to get to the point where the well runs dry and you're struggling with what to write about. Because a lot of times, once you've been at it a while, you'll start getting reader comments and reader questions by email, and those can kind of guide your posts after that, you know, if you know that the same question keeps coming up over and over and over again, and people are actually taking the time to email you with that question, then there are probably a lot of other people that want to know too. So after you've been doing it a while, it's easier to get a sense of what you really should be writing about. And also, most people are not traveling nonstop all, all the time, you know, 52 weeks a year. So you also don't want to just use all your material from a trip the first week you get back and then you don't have anything left for later. So I would just say sort of take it easy. Don't kill yourself at first. But as far as how long it takes, when I first started blogging, it wasn't uncommon for people to write two paragraphs and hit publish and say, I'm done. (laughs) And uh, those days are definitely gone. It takes a lot longer to write a blog post now because you've got to have good photographs or video. You've got to do the categories. You've got to do the tags. You've got to do the SEO meta tags at the bottom. You know, there's all this additional work that goes into a blog post you got to put in links you know there's just a lot of stuff involved there rather than just banging out the text and so i think it's reasonable to a lot two three four hours to a blog post if it's something meaty and good you know if it's something real quick and dirty five five best things to do and blah 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 then maybe you can crank that out in an hour but i think most of the time you're going to need to like dedicate your morning to a post yeah because Basically, at expatmoneyshow.com, I obviously run the podcast, which we're on right now, but I also publish an article based off of each one of my interviews. And those will be around that, you know, 1,300, 1,400, 1,500 words. But even for the show notes for each one of these episodes, my show notes might be, you know, 800, 900 word articles, which is really like a quite a substantial blog post on its own. And those things take me five hours, six hours to do my show notes, which I, I'm sure a lot of other podcasters just think I'm crazy. But I, I really see that there's so much value in these episodes in what my guests are, are speaking about that you really do have to put in the time. Yeah, my one big advice on that is learn to block out your time and prioritize. I, I mean, you're clearly doing that if you're writing that much. I think a lot of beginners, especially young ones, are in this habit of constantly pinging back and forth between eight different things on their phone or their desktop. And that's really detrimental to doing, you know, good deep work that requires concentration. So turn off those pinging email notifications, close Facebook, sign out of it, you know, get all the other stuff out of the picture so that you can really concentrate on what you're doing. I actually run a course. I'm not just plugging this for the heck of it. It actually is relevant, but I run a course called productivity power for writers and it's uh It's really just trying to break a lot of those bad habits that will allow you to just, you start your day and say, okay, what are the three things I've really got to get done? And then you get those done first before you, you know, mess around with your email and see what your friends are doing on Facebook and send out a bunch of tweets and all of that. Well, I think productivity is a really, really important topic. And I think it will become more and more important as we become so inundated with technology and it becomes so ingrained in our lives. Yeah. And and those Systems are built to be addictive, you know. I mean, I, I can't believe people still don't realize this, but, you know, you are the product for Facebook. They want you to spend as much time on there as possible. They're going to do everything they can to keep drawing you back in and, you know, reminding you every hour that you need to be back on here. 
So, uh, you know, you have to willfully break that cycle on your own accord. Nobody's going to do it for you. Well, and this reminds me, you said the words deep work. I remember uh, Cal Newport's book, Deep Work, and I think I read it three times because it was so monumental for me. Some of the tips and the things and the research that had gone into to addiction and uh, and how to really focus your brain. Yeah, that's good. And there's another good one called Thinking Fast and Slow. And it's it's real scientific about how our brain works. And it's also very depressing because it makes you realize how many things go back to our caveman days. You know, like we do we do things that are not serving us well in the modern world. Like it, even the shiny object syndrome goes back to that. You know, we were easily distracted by shiny objects because you needed to be to survive back in the old days. But it's not helping us anymore. <laughs> Yeah, I think I've read that book. I'm trying to remember the names, the author of the names. I think he was from Israel, wasn't he? I think so. There were two guys that were researchers together, and then I think one of them had died. But yeah. It was like the culmination of 30 years of work or something like that, and talking about System 1 and System 2. It was quite powerful. Yeah, right. Not to be disrespectful to the authors, but that was a very dense book. And I'm a voracious reader, and I found that book very challenging. Yeah, it was not easy to get through. There's another one, The Power of Habit, that's a little easier to get through that has a lot of the same concepts. But Charles Duhigg, yeah, he's amazing. Yeah, yeah. But I felt it was worth it. There's some books like that, like Anti-Fragile's like that. It was a tough book to get through, but it's so good. I mean, it's so mind-blowing. What's that one? I don't know that one at all. I always love to hear book recommendations. Yeah, it's by Nassim Taleb, and he wrote The Black Swan. Uh, that one was all about the coming financial collapse and how to deal with it, and, you know, that you have to predict the unpredictable, you know, basically. But the anti-fragile is about making yourself the opposite of fragile, basically. It's a lot of principles that one of them is the whole travel thing we were talking about, about building in extra time and, you know, <laughs> things like that, building in a plan B so that you're not stressed when things go wrong. But it, there's a lot of stuff in there about medical, like don't, don't try a new pill that's only been out two years because we don't know yet what the real effects are. But it's a tough book because he's kind of a know-it-all, but he's right most of the time, so it's good. Well, I'll definitely have to check that out. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, it's good. And one point he really makes in there that's near and dear to my heart is a uh, self-employed person. He says that a taxi driver is much less fragile than a stockbroker because a stockbroker may be making much more money but if the taxi driver has a bad day, it's just one day, and he's going to be you know, making up for it later. But if the, if the stockbroker loses his job, he goes to zero. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. it's an interesting way of looking at the self-employed world because, okay, we have good months and bad months, but you know, we don't completely go to zero unless we're, we've really messed up how we set up our business. So in some ways, we're a lot less fragile than the person who has a corporate job. That makes sense. So listen, Tim, imagine I come down to Mexico and we go out drinking, we're having a few tequilas, and I want to know the secret to success, Tim. I lean in and I'm like, Tim, what's that one secret that if you told me and I told anyone else in the whole wide world, what's that one secret, Tim? Put your all into what you're doing and stick around long enough for it to pay off. Because if you move on to the next thing before you've given the first thing enough time to really blossom then you're going to be constantly jumping from failure to failure. So be patient, work hard at it, and stick it out. That's a really good one for entrepreneurs. We're so guilty of that shiny object syndrome. (laughs) Yeah, and I've started multiple businesses, so I can understand like wanting to jump on something new, but don't get rid of the old one. You know, keep doing the old one too. (laughs) 
I love it. Brilliant. Very, very interesting conversation, Tim. If my listeners want to reach out to you, if they want to read some of your work, where can we send them? So everything is linked from my name, timleffel.com. That's kind of my portfolio site. But perceptivetravel.com is the narrative travel site we talked about. Cheapest Destinations blog is the one where it's just me writing all the time, if you want to really hear it from the horse's mouth. And that's got the most about living abroad. And my books are on Amazon. Just search Tim Leffel. And I'm, I have my name on most social media sites. If you just search my name, except on Globetrots on Instagram, because somebody had already snagged my name, the bastard. They stole it. <laughs> Send him an email, buy it off him. Everyone has their price. <laughs> That's right. But I don't care enough about Instagram, I guess, to worry about it. So as long as I have it for my domain, that's the key thing. Absolutely. Well, Tim, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. We'll talk soon, okay? Okay. Well, thanks a lot for having me, Mikhail, and talk to you later. Hey, everyone. Mikkel here. I want to get some feedback from you, the listener. We are looking at ways that we can take the podcast in new directions, new guests that we want to have on the show, new ideas we want to share with you. So we have a lot of threads going for this at Expat Money Forum, our private Facebook group. If you go to expatmoneyforum.com, you can join the conversation. I want to hear feedback from you guys. What topics have we not covered that you want to hear more of? Do you want to hear more stories from successful expats who have moved offshore? Do you want to hear more business-related stuff, more finance-related stuff? Are you more interested in immigration and visas and passports? Is it the investments or real estate? I want to know what you are interested in. This show is not about me. It is about you guys. It is about all of my amazing listeners and trying to help inspire you and get you the best up-to-date knowledge every single Wednesday when I publish this show. So join the conversation at Expat Money Forum. Let me know what you think, what you want to hear more about, how I can best serve you. It's really important to me to make this show the absolute best in our space. And I think we're off to a really good start podcast has been going for over four years now, which is just hard to believe. I, it seems like just yesterday I started it, and the feedback has been amazing. But there's always room to improve. There's always things we can do better. So share your knowledge, share your expertise, share what you want to hear, share your wants, your desires, your needs, your goals, everything with us at Expat Money Forum. I really appreciate it. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region.
But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.